0: 65,615,653. On Tuesday, November 8, 2016, more than 65 million American voters made history. Though Hillary Rodham Clinton did not become president of the United States, her nomination to run for president on a major party ticket and her then record-setting popular vote count declared to many Americans that Clinton would not be the last woman to run for president. That final glass ceilings of male privilege in national politics were closer to shattering than ever before. Though the crowd gathered in midtown Manhattan did not get to celebrate a victory that night, Clinton's candidacy and campaign revealed a lot about the nature, the good and the bad, of women participating in politics. Initially, men believed that politics was too dirty and corrupt for women, the angelic keepers of domestic safe havens. Throughout most of U.S. history, voting took place in dark and dingy saloons, Nominations were brokered in smoke-filled rooms where party bosses made sure their interests were met. Voting didn't even take place in secret until the latter part of the 19th century, meaning that peer pressure and corruption played almost as large a role as candidate platforms. And campaigning? In 1800, Thomas Woolsey, the president of Yale College and an ardent supporter of President John Adams, declared that if Thomas Jefferson won, quote, we would see our wives and daughters the victims of legal prostitution. If you believe that women, in particular white, middle-class women, were pure and righteous, politics did not present itself as a particularly respectable venue. If you wanted to keep your good reputation, that is. But if the political process is meant to guide the nation in our most important choices, who serves and represents us, and our needs and governmental decisions, many women believe that they deserve a seat at the table. As women became active advocates of women's rights, women's suffrage, and women's autonomy, they also began asking who is best fit to serve the full needs of our towns, states, and nation, and why were women excluded? In this final episode of Hindsight, we will explore how women became active participants in the political process and candidates for political office. We will find political women on the radical extremes and in the more conservative center of politics. And we will discover who chose to answer the call to serve from all corners of American life, bringing with them new ideas and perspectives to the political arena, changing how we envision a politician forever. So join me, Dr. Robin Henry, for episode six, Walking the Walk, Political Participants and Representatives. American politics, we revel in firsts. Over the course of US history, politicians have represented who we are and what we want for our nation. More recently, politicians have increasingly represented who we actually are, and always have been, a diverse and complex nation of people from different classes, ethnic and racial backgrounds, genders and sexual orientations, and different political views. However, in telling the story of women in politics, we have to ask ourselves, what do we really mean by politics? In the 1970s, women's rights activists began to rally behind the slogan, the personal is political. Though the authorship remains unclear, Carol Hanisch's titular use of it in a 1969 essay brought it into the public consciousness of American women. This simple yet provocative phrase underscores the connection between personal experience and the larger social and political contexts in which we live. For many women, their lack of significant representation at all levels of government meant that their personal issues, in particular dealing with the challenges of the nuclear family, work, health, child and elder care, and the myriad of legal and cultural inequities were not adequately addressed. Many were not addressed at all. In her 1984 article, The Domestication of Politics, historian Paula Baker challenges us to broaden our definition of politics. Quote, to include any action, formal or informal, take into effect the course or behavior of government or the community. Under this definition, we see women acting in political ways as early as the 18th century in colonial North America and throughout American history. As we have previously explored, women engaged in political conversations, petitioned their neighbors, and debated in public prior to casting a vote or holding office. But what we're looking at here is the act of serving in government. Taking Baker's broad definition of what is included in politics and applying it to the traditional modes of political expression, serving as elected representation, reveals a different story. That history is much shorter, but not as short as you might think. In many ways, our first first brings us full circle to reencounter a familiar person, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Though we have learned about her as a tireless advocate of women's rights, and in particular suffrage rights, she is also the first woman to run for political office in the United States. In 1866, Stanton ran for the U.S. House of Representatives as an independent from New York's 8th district. Her platform naturally focused on women's rights. She lost, receiving 24 votes of the 12,000 votes cast. Six years later, in 1872, Victoria Woodhull became the first woman to run for president. A stockbroker, a publisher, and an advocate of women's suffrage and free love, Woodhull announced her candidacy in May and was officially nominated in June by the Equal Rights Party, making her the first official female presidential candidate. She won no electoral votes, and there is no record of how many votes she received. In fact, there is some question if she was even a legitimate candidate, not because of her gender, but because she did not turn 35, the required age to serve as president as stated in the Constitution, until September of 1873. For the foreseeable future, at least for federal offices, women would be barred from elected representation until Jeanette Rankin, a Republican from Montana, was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1916. However, women did have more success in local and statewide elected offices. In 1866, Suzanne Salter of Argonia, Kansas became the first woman elected mayor in the United States. Not only was her election a surprise, so was her nomination. Residents of Argonia placed her name on the slate of candidates as a joke, meant to deter women from running for office and to end any talk of women's suffrage and rights. On election day, Salter discovered her candidacy and agreed, if elected, to serve. Then, abandoning their preferred candidate, the powerful Women's Christian Temperance Union, of which Salter was a proud member, voted en masse for her. Additionally, Salter gave local Republicans her word that, if elected, she would adopt most of their platform. In the end, she received more than two-thirds of the votes cast. Though her term was relatively uneventful and Salter herself was not a radical supporter of women's rights or political participation, her election drew national attention and opened the door for other women to seek office at the local level. And they did, but not in droves. Unlike what Americans saw in 1992 or 2018, years with a surge of women elected to office, there was no, quote, year of the woman following Salter's election. Still. During the last half of the 19th century, more women did successfully enter into elected politics. In 1892, Laura Eisenhuth, a Democrat from North Dakota, was elected superintendent of public instruction, becoming the first woman elected to statewide executive office. Two years later, in 1894, Coloradans elected the first three women to serve in a state legislature, Clara Cressingham, Carrie C. Hawley, and Frances Clock. And two years after that, in 1896, Utah voters made Martha Hughes Cannon the first woman elected to a state senate. From the late 19th century to the early 20th century, women served in their city governments, on panels and commissions, and in state houses in ever-increasing numbers. And that's where you can still find the majority of American women serving in elected political office today. Although these firsts were important for their own sake, they also served collectively to normalize women running for and serving in elected office. Women could define themselves and their work to fit Paula Baker's broader definition of politics, but they also began to see themselves fitting into the more traditional definition. For most women at the time, though, these mostly Western, sometimes radical women running for and serving in office remained unknown. Even today, their names are not familiar to most Americans. It would be Jeanette Rankin who would change this trend. A Republican from Montana, Rankin broke into federal elected politics and onto the front pages of newspapers across the country as the first woman elected to Congress. Rankin served two non-consecutive terms, the first term before most American women even had the right to vote. With Rankin, we start to see ways for women to run successful campaigns. Rankin ran on a major party ticket, and she was well-financed by her brother, an influential member of the Republican Party. With her money and her name associated with a major party, she was able to campaign across the state by rail and by car. Of course, what Rankin is most noted for is her pacifism, a belief that compelled her to vote against a U.S. declaration of war in both world wars. In her beliefs, she differed from most women and most Americans. She was a pacifist and also a progressive and a longtime supporter of women's rights, including suffrage. However, once in Congress, she pushed for these reforms not only as an American, but as a woman, a graduate of the New York School of Philanthropy, which is now the Columbia University School of Social Work, and as a caretaker of her younger siblings on the Montana frontier. Rankin's life and life experiences were different, and she used those differences to bring a new political perspective to the House of Representatives. Throughout the 1920s and 1930s, the march of firsts continued. In 1922, Rebecca Latimer Felton, a Democrat from Georgia, became the first woman to serve in the U.S. Senate, even if it was just for a day as a ceremonial appointment in honor of her late husband. In 1923, New Mexicans elected Soledad Chacon as Secretary of State, making her the first Latina elected to office in the United States. Two years later, in 1925, Wyoming elected Nellie Taylor Ross to serve out her dead husband's term as governor. And in 1938, Pennsylvanians made Crystal Drita Byrd-Falcett the first black woman elected to a state legislature. The lists continued and grew. And that's important. Each first is important. But they become more influential when they begin to form a pattern. Nationally and in hindsight, you can see a pattern developing in the 1920s and 1930s, resulting in more women serving in elected office. But there is nothing more that really connects them together. It is as if, all over the country, American women were checking off important firsts, but with little national support for women's issues or conducting an open dialogue about women in politics. Neither the Republicans nor Democrats saw female candidates as an asset to their parties and so did not spend the time and money supporting and selecting them. After World War II, things began to change. Women had not only proven themselves important on the home front and abroad, but they continued to advocate for greater amounts of government civil service positions and a voice in federal politics. In many cases, this voice came as a wife. Though we might mock political wives as a category to be dismissed and ignored, many post-war political wives, especially those married to congressmen and senators, found their ways into the most important conversations through volunteer and auxiliary work. This work definitely fits into Baker's broader definition of political activities, but it also put women in the right places when opportunity came. Sometimes what came next was another auxiliary event. Sometimes it was a civil service job or a run for political office. In the case of Margaret Chase Smith, opportunity came in the form of tragedy. In the spring of 1940, Smith's husband, Clyde Smith, a Republican representative from Maine, fell ill. He asked his wife to run in his place. She did, and she won. Now, Smith's request was not unusual. Women had been elected or selected by state officials to serve out the rest of their husband's term or to take his place when they died in office. Whether it was Rebecca Latimer Felton's honorary election to the US Senate for a day, or Nellie Taylor Ross's longer elected service, this gesture was seen as a way for the husband's political legacy and agenda to be carried on, but not as a way to open the door to more women serving in elected office. However, Smith's case was different. After serving in the House for the remainder of her husband's term, she was elected four times in her own right to serve from 1940 to 1948. In 1948, she ran and was elected senator, the first woman to do so in her own right, and she served until she was defeated in 1972. While in the Senate, Smith made a name for herself as an active and engaged senator. She served on a number of high-profile committees and was the first senator to call out Joseph McCarthy's unproven accusations of communists in the State Department. She voted for his censure in 1954. Though her actions may not have won her support from McCarthy's faction, her loyal support of Republican legislation and her growing influence within the Senate placed her on the short list of vice presidential candidates in 1952. Though Eisenhower ultimately chose another senator, Richard Nixon from California, the mere fact that Smith's name was on the list is important. Someone, in this case Eisenhower, had envisioned a woman, not only on the executive ticket, but in a position, in the face of a crisis, of assuming the office of the presidency. The 1960s saw two more firsts for Smith, and for many more women in politics. First, in her 1960 reelection campaign, Smith ran against Democrat Lucia Cormier, the first time two women ran against each other. But probably the most important first was her 1964 bid for the presidency. Though Virginia Woodhull was the first woman to run for president, Smith was the first woman to place her name in nomination for a major party. One of the many things that differentiated her from Woodhull was that though she was a woman, she rarely focused on issues deemed, quote, women's issues or approached foreign policy from a stereotypical view of women and family. This point also differentiates her from other female politicians of the 1960s. In part because of her generation, and part because of her conservative politics, Smith did not become part of the women's movement or a politician who used her platform to support feminist politics. Other women, however, used their experiences as women to inform their political activity and their campaigns. This mix of political activism and political representation brought new voices and faces into American politics, but it also brought new and important issues into national conversation. Beyond consciousness raising, people like Fannie Lou Hamer, Shirley Chisholm, and Bella Abzug worked within political parties and as elected officials to make changes that affected women's lives. Dr. Megan Parker Brooks, Associate Professor of Civic Communication and Media at Willamette University, reveals the ways in which Fannie Lou Hamer used political activism and politics together.
1: Fannie Lou Hamer was uh, the granddaughter of enslaved persons. Her life spanned 59 tumultuous years in American history. Uh, She spent the first 44 years of her life from 1917 to 1962 on the Delta Share cropping plantations in Mississippi. Uh, Hamer was a human rights activist. She spoke out about the exploitative labor practices and the lack of economic and educational opportunities for rural black people in the American South. Hamer was in fact the most outspoken representative of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee's campaign to empower masses of Southern Black people. She would often testify about how white supremacists withheld basic human necessities like food, water, shelter, and healthcare to punish Black activism in Mississippi. Over the course of her 15 years as a human rights activist from 1962 to 1977, Hamer shared platforms with the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., Stokely Carmichael, Ella Baker, Pete Seeger, Gloria Steinem, Betty Friedan, and Malcolm X, who in fact referred to her as the country's number one freedom-fighting woman. Hamer also marched with Ambassador Andrew Young, and she demonstrated alongside congressional representatives like John Lewis and Eleanor Holmes Norton. Uh, She spoke at the 1964, 1968, and 1972 Democratic National Conventions, and she was a founding member of the National Women's Political Caucus. She was one of the very first civil rights activists to publicly speak out against the war in Vietnam, months before the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee issued their formal statement, and nearly two years before King delivered his famous A Time to Break the Silence speech. Hamer regularly spoke out on college campuses, including the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Harvard, Duke, Florida State University, and Seattle University. And when she challenged the legitimacy of U.S. congressmen sent from her state during a Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party demonstration in Washington, D.C., Hamer was among the first three black women in United States history to be seated on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives. In the last decade of her life, Hamer parlayed her national notoriety into material support for her economically destitute Mississippi Delta community. She helped hundreds of Mississippi residents acquire decent housing. She encouraged thousands of black people to register to vote, and she secured millions of dollars worth of food, clothing, farm equipment, and monetary donations from Northern supporters of poverty programs in the South. Hamer's first attempt to register to vote foreshadows many of her qualities as a
0: future leader in the civil rights movement and for black politics.
1: The story um, of Hamer uh, trying to register for the first time is, is really illuminating and it demonstrates a lot of the extra legal ways in which uh, white people kept black people from the franchise. Um, So once Hamer learned of her voting rights at the at this mass meeting held by SNCC and the SCLC in August of 1962, she was eager to exercise her voting rights. So through these mass meetings which were held at churches and in the living rooms of local leaders in her rural community Uh, SNCC and the SCLC inspired a group of about 18 Black Deltans to try to register at their county courthouse in Indianola, Mississippi. So they borrowed a bus uh, and drove um, the 18 registration hopefuls uh, to the county seat, and they were met there by an armed mob of citizens' counselors, and across the south, uh, the citizens' council were widely known as the Klan in Suits, not Sheets. Uh, Once Hamer and the other black citizens from Ruleville made their way through the mob into the courthouse, they were given literacy tests and asked to interpret sections, obscure sections, of the Mississippi Constitution to the clerk's satisfaction. Uh, As you might imagine, all 18 registration hopefuls failed these tests, which were, of course, designed to bar their civic participation in the first place. And on the way back to their small delta town, the bus driver that carried them to the courthouse was stopped by a state highway patrolman and charged with quote, driving a bus that was too yellow. When Mrs. Hamer finally made it home that night, the citizens council had already informed her employer, who was also her landlord, about her registration attempt. She lost her job and was evicted from her home. She then sought refuge at a friend's home, and no less than two weeks later, a white supremacist night Rider shot 16 bullets into the friend's home just inches above the bed where Hamer had slept. She had to go into hiding at a distant cousin's cabin for fear of her life. So because Hamer attempted, unsuccessfully, to register to vote in the Mississippi Delta in 1962, She was harassed and ridiculed by citizens council members, the county clerk, and a state highway patrolman. She lost her job and was evicted from a home where she had lived with her family for 18 years, and her life was threatened so much so that she had to go into hiding.
0: Hamer was like so many millions of Southern black women in the early 20th century who saw their and their families' futures held back by systemic and institutional racism. In attempting to take the first step toward political participation, Hamer's experiences turned her into a political activist. One of the oldest members of a student organization, the 44-year-old Hamer used her experiences of being denied the right to register to vote as a catalyst to change the local and national political system that barred African Americans from voting. But Hamer didn't stop at educating Mississippians about their voting
1: rights. She also challenged the ways in which candidates were selected. For most of your listeners, if they've heard of Fannie Lou Hamer, I would imagine it's through this 1964 Democratic National Convention challenge. Um, this was the challenge that the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party brought to the Democratic National Convention in 1964. It was the final stage of a multifaceted campaign known as Freedom Summer, um, which included a mass voter registration drive, again, you know, uh, encouraging students from the north to come down and um, spend their summer in Mississippi registering black voters. Um, It also included demonstrations to reveal Black interest in civic participation. Part of the narrative coming out of white Southern strongholds was that uh, the reason why we didn't see Black people voting um, in droves was because they weren't interested. So things like mock freedom vote elections, which were held within the Magnolia State, really demonstrated that that was entirely false. Um, There was also a team of lawyers, a legal corps, that came down and gathered sworn affidavits and testimonies that um, spoke to the violent white supremacist retaliation to Black efforts at Civic Assertion, Um, so it was this multi-pronged Freedom Summer campaign. But the challenge at the DNC in August of 1964 was the culmination of the work of Freedom Summer. It consisted of sending a 68-person interracial delegation to challenge the seating of the official and, not coincidentally, all-white delegation that was sent from Mississippi uh, to represent the state. The interracial delegation that Hamer helped organize, motivate, and lead, known as the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, brought their challenge to the DNC's credentials committee. Um, The MFDP argued that they, not the all-white party, should be seated instead on the convention floor because the all-white delegation had literally locked black people out of their statewide convention meetings. Hamer didn't stop with
0: political activism as she ran for state and national offices herself. However, as Dr.
1: Brooks explains, she didn't always think winning was the most important part of her campaign. She also ran for office herself. Um, She was never elected. She ran several times, and she would argue that Being elected was not always her purpose. Part of what she was doing was trying to show her neighbors, her family members, people across the Delta region, um, that it could be done, that someone could run for office and and she could give them something to vote for. She wanted to demystify the experience to encourage people to vote because they could see that there would be a potential for change. Um, She also filed lawsuits against county clerks like Cecil Campbell who was the county registrar who had discriminated against her in Sunflower County. And she also organized poll watchers uh, who were drawn from across the country through networks she had made in her own national travels. And she uh, encouraged those poll watchers to come down and support Black Deltons as they cast ballots in local, regional, and statewide elections. Like Fannie Lou Hamer,
0: Shirley Chisholm used her experiences to bring local issues to national attention. Born in Brooklyn, Chisholm graduated from Brooklyn College in 1946 and made education and children's welfare her life's work and passion. While working in a child care center and a nursery school in Harlem, she earned her master's degree from Columbia University's Teachers College. Over the next decade, she worked as a director at several child care centers throughout New York City, quickly becoming an expert in educational policy and child welfare. When Chisholm entered politics, it was through traditional organizations, such as the League of Women Voters. Working on campaigns inspired her to run for office herself. In 1964, she ran for New York State Assembly and won. Between 1964 and 1968, she served in the New York State Assembly, representing and supporting education and welfare issues. Her work gained her attention and support from the state Democratic Party. In 1968, she took her campaign to the next level, running for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives from New York's 12th Congressional District, the first Black woman to do so. She won. Until she retired in 1983, she fought for the expansion of food and nutritional programs for the impoverished, in addition to educational programs. But it was her presidential bid in 1972 that made Mrs. Chisholm a more familiar face. Crisscrossing crossing the nation, she gained grassroots support during the primary season. In the opening statements of her speech announcing her candidacy, we can hear Chisholm's inclusive message for her campaign and her potential presidency.
2: I stand before
0: you today as a
2: candidate for the Democratic nomination for the presidency of the United States of America. I am not the candidate of black America, although I am black and proud. I am not the candidate of the women's movement of this country, although I am a woman, and I'm equally proud of that. I am not the candidate of any political bosses or fat cats or special interests. here now, without endorsements from many big-name politicians or celebrities or any other kind of prop, I do not intend to offer to you the tired and glib cliches which for too long have been accepted part of our political life. I am the candidate of the people of America.
0: As the first black politician and the first Democratic woman to run for president, Chisholm's bloodless revolution spoke to people across the country and offered a new articulation of the American identity. Idealistically, Chisholm's campaign represented a more modern vision of both the American electorate and American governmental representation. Politically, Chisholm's campaign stands out from women's previous presidential bids in one important way. In the nomination process, she earned 28 delegates. During the 1972 Democratic National Convention in Miami, Florida, the political maneuvering was reminiscent of the backroom politicking that had made men, and many women, believe the environment unfit for women. Chisholm's delegates found themselves caught between the dueling Hubert Humphrey and George McGovern campaigns. In a very fractured Democratic Party, neither Humphrey nor McGovern had enough delegates to win the nomination, outright. Instead of accepting a token role at the convention, Chisholm attempted to hold on to her delegates and use them to bargain for important issues to be included in the party platform. In the end, she was not terribly successful, but she did show that women were not token candidates, but rather major players in the party who contributed to its direction and success. Though Chisholm never ran for president again, she opened doors for women as serious presidential candidates. Not even 12 years later, a fellow representative from New York, Geraldine Ferraro, would also draw the attention of the Democratic Party. In 1984, the National Organization for Women and the National Women's Political Caucus pressured the Democratic Party to select a woman as Walter Mondale's running mate. As a self-declared moderate Democrat, Ferraro was politically situated between the hawkish Margaret Chase Smith and the socially conscious Shirley Chisholm. For the Democratic Party, she was the perfect choice. On July 12, 1984, Geraldine Ferraro made history, becoming the first woman to accept the vice presidential nomination from a major party. For Ferraro and millions of Americans, her acceptance speech marked a turning point in American politics. Cited as one of the most influential speeches of the 20th century, Ferraro, dressed in suffragist white, declared that. Tonight, the daughter of a woman whose highest goal was a future for her children talks to our nation's oldest party about a future for us all. tonight. The Daughter of Working Americans
2: tells all Americans that the future is within our reach
0: if we're willing to reach for it. Tonight,
2: the Daughter of an Immigrant from Italy has been chosen...
0: and chosen to run for president in the new land my father came to love. Our faith that we can shape a better future is what the American dream is all about. In many ways, Ferrara's inclusive vision of the Democratic Party and her candidacy did not differ much from Shirley Chisholm's vision. Having been on the outside of elected politics, both women, in different ways, could see how their experiences drove them, and how much better the party and the nation could be if more people influenced their directions. Though Mondale and Ferraro lost in a landslide to the incumbent Ronald Reagan, Ferraro's nomination and appearances on the campaign trail helped normalize women in political roles, for some. As women became national candidates, they also fell under greater scrutiny by the public and the media. Reporters asked Ferrara whether her gender would affect everything from diplomatic relations to foreign policy discussions to social policy. She was publicly chastised and called arrogant, among other words. She was asked how her husband would feel with a vice president for a wife and if she could keep up the demands of being a mother and a vice president, even though her youngest child was 18. Her male counterpart, George H.W. Bush, never faced these or similar questions. So far, outside of Margaret Chase Smith, we've mostly discussed women in the Democratic Party. Though that might be where the majority of 20th century women gravitated, women's political involvement was not relegated to the Democratic Party. Republican women continued to run for office at all levels of government. They served in Republican cabinets. Women like Nancy Kassebaum, Olympia Snow, and Kay Bailey Hutchison were elected to the Senate. In 2000, Elizabeth Dole ran for president. In 2008, the Republicans made history by nominating Sarah Palin, the governor of Alaska, to be the party's vice presidential candidate. Though presidential candidate John McCain received some criticism for selecting a rather unknown running mate, Palin followed a very common track for women in politics. She had started local. Beginning with the PTA, she ran for city council, became the mayor of Wasilla, Alaska, and in 2006, was elected the ninth governor of Alaska, based on her support for the oil and gas industry and support for what she called clean government. McCain's selection made Palin the second woman to run on a major party ticket and the first to run as a Republican. Like Ferraro, Palin lost, but she gained nationwide support and a political platform because of her nomination and her eventual role in the Tea Party movement. But regardless of the level and success, women's place within electoral politics remained and continues to remain, at times, frustrating. Also like Ferraro, Palin was subjected to gender and sexist stereotypes along the campaign trail. Though more women are entering races for federal office, they're less likely to succeed, making many women wonder if the, quote, female candidate is nominated or chosen more for a novelty and the pride of a first time rather than recognition of their political capacity and contributions. But regardless of party motives, the fact that party pressure leans toward advocating for these differences and supporting women candidates is an important change. The true normalization of women political leaders, though, comes when this action is no longer novel. But how do we get there? A lot of the change comes from changing people's minds and perceptions of women. The more women candidates and elected officials exist, the more opportunity Americans have to change their minds. But changing hearts and minds is difficult to do if women are not selected, supported, and nominated in the early stages of their campaigns. Historically, women's campaigns at all levels are less likely than men's to receive funding and support from political parties and their major donors. Without money, women appear unsupported and often do not make it out of the primary process, proving that it's risky to support women candidates. This cycle is hard to break. Ellen Malcolm and a group of like-minded women attempted to find a solution to this problem. In 1985, they formed EMILY's List, the first women-centered political action committee. The organization focuses on abortion rights supporting Democratic candidates because Malcolm understood what so many of the women we've discussed in this podcast did. You need a voice and a place at the table in order to guarantee your political issues get raised and supported. Malcolm wanted to make sure that women who supported the women's rights agenda made it out of the social organizations and into Congress, where they could affect legislation. Political activism is important, but so is political action. What you may not know is that EMILY is an acronym that stands for Early Money Is Like Yeast. Malcolm argued that if they could support promising women's campaigns early with an infusion of cash, it would attract more donors, including party-affiliated donors. Since 1985, EMILY's List has supported dozens of successful campaigns and helped increase the number of women from the Democratic Party in the House and Senate. Emily's List was an instrumental supporter of Hillary Clinton's 2008 and 2016 presidential campaigns, as well as Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign after Super Tuesday in 2020. Between 2010 and 2020, it also helped support a much more diverse slate of candidates. This, too, falls within the mission of Emily's List to diversify the voices in Congress and the White House. The first tangible evidence of Emily's List's success came in 1992, known as the Year of the Woman, This election cycle saw women respond to the low numbers of women in the Senate. And none of them were on the Judicial Committee that had heard Anita Hill testify about alleged sexual harassment by Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas. Something had to be done. In 1992, 13 women won major party nominations for Senate races and 108 won nominations for House races. The results were unprecedented. Twenty-four women won election to the House and three to the Senate tripling the number of women in the Senate and putting more women into Congress than ever before. Much of that success was due, in part, to early money provided by EMILY's List. The 2018 midterm elections are also considered a year of the woman, seeing another surge of women into Congress, most of whom received support from EMILY's List. In response to the success of EMILY's List and the surge of mostly Democratic women, conservative women formed two important political action committees. In 1993, Rachel McNair founded the Susan B. Anthony List to help support anti-abortion, primarily women politicians. In 2010, Jeanette Nunez, Gail Harrell, and Jennifer Carroll founded Maggie's List. Named for the first woman elected to both houses of Congress, Margaret Chase Smith, Maggie's List is a political action committee to, quote, raise awareness and funds to increase the number of conservative women elected to federal public office. Both of these groups follow the EMILY's List model, selecting women who share specific political views in order to get them into Congress. What these groups have in common is the belief that the political institution's status quo, Republican and Democrat, does not support or favor women's candidacies. Instead of combating the system, they use the language of politics, money, to fight back and circumnavigate this prejudice, placing pressure on both parties to be more active supporters of women candidates at all stages and from all regions of the country. And so, here we are, one month before Kamala Harris is sworn in as Vice President of the United States, one more step in the line of firsts for women, black women, and Indian Americans. Though many women running for office do not actively connect back to the 19th century suffragists, we do see shades of it in their campaigns to include women and domestic sphere issues, overturn cultural biases against women, and enforce laws that support equity. We also see it in their attire. No other piece of clothing connects women in or seeking political office to their suffragist foremothers more than the all-white dress, now more often an all-white pantsuit. Geraldine Ferraro and Hillary Clinton wore them, on purpose, as they accepted their party's historic nominations for candidacies as vice president and president, respectively. Kamala Harris wore hers as she addressed the nation as the presumptive vice president-elect. As protest to Donald Trump's misogyny and the misogyny he inspired, Democratic women wore white to his first address to Congress. This symbol connects women today to where they've been. I'm often asked what I think 19th century suffragists would think of women's progress today. And I think really, it's a mixed bag. There is so much change and still so much that needs to be changed for all American women to enjoy full and equal citizenship. Suffragists might be surprised at who, Black women, Native American women, lesbians, and working-class women now represent Americans in Congress and what types of legislation now protect women. But I don't think any of them would be surprised that the mission of women's equality continued after the vote. Not every woman got to vote in 1920, and not every inequality was solved with the vote. Though I hope that you have learned more about women's fight for suffrage, I also hope that you have learned that women never saw suffrage as the end goal or the end of inequality. It was always the vote and what came after displays as much of the complex and conflicting experiences American women have always had and the diverse array of goals they continue to work toward. We are living in that after. But we are not, as of yet, historical. We can make the history, sure, but we are not done. And so what comes next, how you use this history, is up to you. Through the struggle for women's suffrage and rights, I hope you are inspired to look deeper, ask more questions, and engage in conversations about the ways in which women and men remain disfranchised today. Like the amazing Wichiton who has been hanging the National Women's Party flag outside their home, or the record number of people who came out and voted in 2020. But most importantly, use your vote. It is your voice.
1: Hindsight is hosted by Dr. Robin Henry and produced by Fletcher Powell in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. The digital editor for the podcast is Beth Golay. All artwork for Hindsight is created by Jordan Kirtley. Support for Hindsight comes from Drs. Martha and Daniel Householder, the George R. Tiller MD Memorial Fund for the Advancement of Women's Health, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.